Welcome to the Lotcast episode. This is for silent films. My name is Jeffrey, and I'll be hosting a discussion on silent films, their history, and some of our guests' favorite films from the silent era. I'm going to start by introducing everybody real quick. So our first guest is Elena. Hello. Hello, Elena. Thanks for joining us. Uh, second guest is Iggy. Hey, yeah. Hello, Iggy. And then our final guest is Daniel. Hello. Welcome, Daniel. All right, thanks for joining, everybody. So I think the first thing that we should talk about for sound films, and we should all get a response from everyone, is why do you like sound films, and how did you get into the silent film world? Let's start with you, Elena. Uh, so I got into silent films probably about nine months ago or so and i did a little bit of a silent film binge i watched maybe like 20 silent films in the span of a month um and i thought mm -hmm. that would be it for a bit um and then i just found myself wanting to come back to them i think i just really enjoy the experimentation of the silent era and uh just not you know it's an era where a lot of people were just experimenting and not exactly knowing what worked um, and I just like the variety and the creativity of the era, and it keeps making me want to come back. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that. Uh, what about you, Iggy? So back when I first started watching movies, uh, the very first silent film I watched was uh, Nosferatu. It was uh, October, and I figured, hey, why not go back to this movie that's 100 years old and see how <laughs> right. it holds up today? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I actually hated it. So, <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, not the not the best introduction, personally. But yeah, that's all right. You know, throughout the years, I've come to like a a lot more of these like older movies. So I've mm -hmm. you know continually gone back to the twenties, the thirties, and uh, yeah, I just really like silent films because I'm a big visual. I'm a big fan of visual storytelling, and that's really something you had to nail back then. 100 uh, definitely yeah and uh, i just think they're a really good example of what cinema started out as and the potential it had you know to carry throughout the rest of i guess the century yeah of course uh what about you daniel what's your connection to sound films <laughs> so it's actually funny you mentioned that icky because my story is actually pretty similar um uh, although it's a different uh Murnau film um so uh, i basically the same time i got into movies I was trying to watch the popular canon. It got a little bit taste of like art house and old cinema. And my first silent uh, was the one that just appeared on all the lists, which was Sunrise. And I just, I didn't like it at all because it was structurally like so bizarre, unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And like I was, I had such, you know, a baby cinema taste. I didn't, couldn't appreciate all the, the visuals until much, much later. And this mm -hmm. was several years ago. Um, and then, uh, the other silent memory I had was I was uh, in my senior year of undergrad. I was sneaking into uh, just classes. I had a, a quarter where uh, my last quarter I was really only in a couple classes and I had a lot of free time. So I was just sneaking into classes that seemed interesting. Um, one was an introduction to American films. And I, I got to see a bunch of films uh, without the stress of having to do any of the homework, which was nice. Um, so the the first couple ones were, were on the silent era so i saw uh chaplin's the kid and uh buster keaton sherlock jr and 
they didn't really persuade me too much, but I, I, I enjoyed them. Uh, but it was, it was a fun time. I didn't really love the genre until kind of around the same time as Elena, actually. Uh, it was last October-ish. I saw Faust uh, for, I guess, Spooktober reasons, even mm-hmm. though it wasn't particularly scary. Uh, but it was just <laughs> so visually dazzling. And it was kind of the tipping point into just wanting to see more, especially pre-20 silent films. And I'm, I'm really glad I did. Yeah. I find it really interesting that both of you like your first exposure was something that you didn't like at all because for me I I would say like my first major exposure to silent film well actually that's a lie I think my first exposure to silent films was through Soviet montage which I don't really think is like the best (laughs) first exposure to silent films but I think that like when I really started getting into the first one I saw was Passion of Joan of Arc which I just like completely loved I was like completely transfixed by it and there was like no looking back from there so I find it like really fascinating that you both had like a negative experience first I don't think I ever really had like a negative experience before so yeah well you know when you're starting out watching movies it's like going from sound to no sound it's like a hard pill to swallow and especially Mm -hmm. with like most silent movies, they have this continuous soundtrack. I think that's what really annoyed me about Osferatu is like the never ending soundtrack when it was supposedly like yeah. this eerie, tense horror movie. And I think that's the main reason I hated it. But uh, I've yet to revisit it to see if I've proven myself wrong or not. Uh, I think that's a good like uh, leeway into something that we should talk about is what are some like big misconceptions of silent films, right? And one of them is that they're they were silent, right? They were not silent, right? They were always accompanied by some musician of some form. It could be a full orchestra, someone on an organ or a piano, or maybe a small string group. It could be up to the theater's discretion. But I always find that pretty interesting when you hear about silent films. You're like, oh, well, you're just supposed to sit there in silence in a big theater and you just watch a movie. Like, that sounds horrible to yeah, me. Yeah, that's what most people think. <laughs> yeah. It can't, it can't right, but... be farther from the truth. Exactly. It's kind of a branding issue with silent films, I think, more than anything. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. I think that the name silent films definitely hurts that or impacts that perception because um yes. yeah, people think that you sit there in silence. It's it's not silent, but score is like a really big part of it. Yeah, I'm I'm just thankful to live in this time where we have so many rescorings of old movies. Uh composers yes. who are going back to create like whole new orchestral scores and uh, for all these classics that either had lost soundtracks or really no composed soundtracks at all. So it's it's like kind of the best time to watch silent films of any point in history. Definitely. We're getting some fantastic remasters as well, mm-hmm. which has just helped expose the genre to a lot more audiences, which is fantastic. Um, I, I was actually doing some reading earlier after I watched Man with a Movie Camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I one of my absolutely favorite scores of all time like silent or not and it came out i think in the early 2000s michael nyman or Mm -hmm. neiman he uh he recorded this whole new soundtrack and i can't imagine a movie without it so it's super like we definitely take it for granted and what's funny is back then they definitely took it for granted too right that uh when you read old reviews of silent films from the time period or uh, just news about them in general. No one really mentions the music. And uh, when they do, it's if it's a, a big event thing, then the, maybe they'll mention it. But most, most silence, uh, they don't talk about the music accompany. So a lot of it was just kind of blended in 
and taken for granted definitely at the time period too. What is uh, everyone's preferred way of watching a silent movie? I, I mean, like with the scores. <laughs> and all that. Do you prefer like how it originally, like with an organ back in the day? Or do you prefer listening maybe with like a, a modern day score or like someone making new music for... Right. But that's yeah. kind of the tricky, the tricky thing about silent films, right? It was totally up to whatever movie theater you were in. If they had someone who could play the organ that day, you were going to hear organ. But if they didn't, then maybe you'd hear like an automatic piano player or something. It, it was kind of up to the uh, musician's taste and discretion on what kind of music you'd be getting. Uh, there's a couple silent films that did have scores made for them. Right, like uh, Joseph Carl Briel did uh, Birth of Nations score. He had a specific score made for the movie, um, which was not really common back then. That was kind of a new thing. Uh, but before that, before like 1916 or so, or I think it was 1918, whatever, um, it was just whoever was available, and they just played stuff that they had around. There were like cue cards and things like that, and that's where it was like a director could give musicians like hey here's like a tune that could work but it, it, again it wasn't enforced so musicians could take the cue cards or just play whatever they knew over the movies which i think is fascinating that there's just kind of like free expression to go along with these films that are also free expression at the time yeah i i think my preferences for orchestral scores primarily uh especially these kind of sweeping epic silent films, I feel like you need like a big ensemble to match that. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the one cool thing, uh, so for instance, uh, like the score uh, to The Big Parade, which is maybe one of my favorite silent scores. It's a, it's a rescoring though by the uh, famous composer, Carl Davis. What he did was he took the motifs of the original score, which I think have been lost, uh, but he used that as the basis for this whole new score. So you still hear kind of like what it would have sounded like on its premiere uh, with mm -hmm. the actual accompaniment, but it's all re-envisioned and reinterpreted for, I think, a much grander. And I think, you know, Carl Davis has done so many great silent scores. Uh, this one just, it's so, so wonderful, uh, the stuff that he was able to do with this and a bunch of other silent films. Uh, Napoleon also, one of his, his, his great scores. Yes. Uh, yeah, his score for Napoleon is just astounding. Love that. I think that often you don't realize how important the score is um, until you try to watch them without a score as well, which I don't, maybe <laughs> that you guys have tried to do that at some point. Um, but there are like a few times where like, I just didn't have a score to go with it. And like, I just can't sit in complete silence. So I would just like put some like um, unintrusive piano music on in the background. And it's just not the same. Um, no. I mean, it like fills the yeah. void, but you know, one of my favorite silent films I watched like that, uh, which is The Great White Silence. Like, I didn't watch it with a score that went with it, and I still really enjoyed it enough that it's one of my favorites. But the score is, like, just such an important part of the experience. You always often want something that, like, matches the intensity of it. Um, but there are definitely times, like, I would prefer, obviously, a score that, you know, is composed to go with the film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it's something kind of understated, maybe something that's like piano or a small ensemble. Um, and if it's, you know, as big, you know, sweeping epic to have something that's an orchestral score. Uh, and sometimes you don't really get that choice. 
sometimes I watch something that might be a little more obscure and there's just not a score that was that I have that was composed to go with it and it's just a bunch of classical pieces like you know collage together to sort of match the scenes <laughs> which right, I'm sure yeah. that you guys have heard as well oh um, yes many times and and it's fine it like indicates how you're supposed to feel in that scene and um at least matches the you know what the film is trying to evoke but mm -hmm. um, I mean obviously the preference is very much for a score that was composed for the film and you know matches its grandiosity or how understated it is or whatever yeah i've actually had an experience where i watched this was actually the first episode of louis fayard's uh Fantomas, um just without any music by myself uh and it was not a great experience i i really felt there was kind of a missing component when i watched it uh mm -hmm. but when i watched it again recently with the music the music really added this very playful kind of element to the whole the whole story uh which is kind of lost it was kind of a little more turgid and just kind of it was a lot more serious without any sort of score and just silence so it really kind of changed my opinion on on that one the first episode at least yeah i can't say i've ever chosen to watch a movie a silent film without its score but i actually wish i did in one recent case I was uh, watching movies to research for this episode, and I saw uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc, which I know you love, Elena. And uh, I wish I had seen that without a score, because I think it really would have, uh, it would have made the, like, the stark visuals uh, that much more, like, enchanting. That's that's a word everyone uses to des to describe that film, but I was a little underwhelmed with it, and I didn't, I, I didn't find myself as engaged, as enchanted as I would have liked. But I think seeing, you know, the trial play out with no score, just, uh, you know, the words that these jurors are using to damn Joan of Arc to hell. Well, it's funny you say that because I think right on the new Criterion release for that movie, there's a couple score. I think there's two score options. I think there are three. Are there? Yeah. Okay. So there's, or, there's a bunch of... On Criterion of Channel, there are three. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's I a lot of different interpretations. Criterion Channel. Okay. Nice. Yeah, so there's a lot of different like versions of a soundtrack. I know there's a wonderful piano one, and then like a full orchestra, and then like an electronic one. So there's a lot of different vibes, I guess you could go with with soundtrack. Yeah, I listened to the full or full orchestra, and it was mm -hmm. just kind of overbearing, I think personally. Yeah, I can see that. My favorite is the choral one. Uh, I think it's called Voices of Light. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's that great. It's that's great. how I saw it. And it's... Yeah, I probably will give it a rewatch some point because I just feel like there's like this missing piece that with that film that just hasn't clicked for me yet, hmm. and I definitely have to revisit it because it's like one of the biggest classics ever. <laughs> yeah, and just to tack on to like some of those points, I know that an instance recently, like where I watched something without the score, was Jeff when we were watching. Uh, Robin Hood and the score oh. was just like so annoying. It was such a long <laughs> film. The score was, was so annoying. We just turned it off and finished it. Yeah, sometimes exactly. like the score is just it was so bad and so like grating after two hours that we we just finished without it. We just it was awful. Yeah. Um it definitely yeah. soured the Robin Hood experience. But um yeah, but uh a lot of the time sometimes people ask, you know, what is the intended way to watch a certain silent film? And it's really 
kind of impossible to watch silent films as they were originally <laughs> intended because we don't have the original scores. You like can't go and watch them as they were watched in you know the 1910s or the 1920s. And so you just kind of have to navigate how do you kind of recreate that experience or alter that experience to fit something that you will enjoy um, and kind of balance that. It's really easy with films that are released now, obviously, to watch them as they were intended. But yeah, the atmosphere of silent films as, you know, in the time that they were made is something that you kind of can't get anymore because of how many scores have been lost and the theaters that you know they were shown in you it's it's just something that you can't really um you have to try to replicate as best you can right and right it's something to always i feel like you have to remember is silence were only around for maybe 30 years or so which is not a long time and that's a pretty short window for a genre and the fact that that spawned movies today is pretty insane to me that we just those tiny 30 years started a whole new art form is mind-boggling well those were the first 30 like those were like the most uh commercially successful uh times for the movies right um because it was seen more of as like a big event that like you you prepare for you dress up for well i you know what? let's talk about that let's uh let's it could be good next discussion is uh so how would someone go experience a silent film right back then? Because I feel like if you're talking about silent movies, you got to split them up into like three sections. I would say you've got the beginning films like in the late 1800s, like 1900, where they're like primitive, mostly showing entertainment only kind of content where they're just there to make a quick buck, show someone laughing or falling down there you go and then you've got the narrative movement in between and then the final third one would be probably the end of the era and the inclusion of sound so i feel like if you're gonna say let's go watch a silent movie in the 1890s it's gonna be like and honestly probably a shithole little circus that is coming <laughs> into town and you're stuck in uh this little room right filled with a kinetoscope thing so, like, the kinetoscope was the very first version of what we could call a movie, right? Where it's um, Thomas Edison and uh, the actual creator, uh, W.K.L. Dixon, right? He came up with the camera and he also established 35mm as, like, the format that we still use today, which is also insane that that's still used. It was the first thing that they came up with. Um so a kinetoscope is like just this tiny little thing you would peek into and you would watch a short little clip of probably a woman undressing or <laughs> someone doing something silly and then there you go. That was it. You would so laugh early and move on. Right. Early on they were not like these big grand things. Yeah. They were just little amusements. It reminded me a lot of the start of photography as well, like which I learned about in an art history class that I took that photography emerged mostly as a means to distribute pornography and right, exactly. you know the start <laughs> of films is mostly to distribute you know pornography and little like you said shithole circuses mm -hmm. um and so i think that sometimes people forget that or they think that that era was really stuffy or you know 
it's just funny to me. I don't think people think about that, that, you know, the starts of, of cinema was usually for humorous things or pornographic things. Yeah, it's yeah. for, <laughs> and it was just for like purely, you know, entertainment to make some money. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I think Edison, who you mentioned, he was one of the founders of the motion picture patent company, the MPPC. Uh, mm -hmm. And something kind of they contributed to this whole perception of film being this just kind of, you know, light entertainment kind of, you know, not very worthwhile medium. Uh, and it was only really until the advent of features where it became more of a something that the middle class was able to get behind. Like, oh, this is actually, you know, some entertainment that uh, we can go to and not, you know, look bad. Uh, exactly. Yeah, they, they thought audiences were stupid and they didn't want. Uh, they restricted uh, <laughs> lots of basically filmmakers to making these just one reelers or you know very yep. very short films. And just from perspective, one reel of film is like maybe a thousand feet or so, so it's not very long. That's maybe, I mean, most early signs were fifteen minutes maximum, maybe maybe thirty minutes if it's uh, a little adventurous, but pretty short experiences on the whole. Yeah, you guys know how I feel about short films. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and why don't you talk about that? <laughs> um, I don't know. Ever since I've started uh, watching movies a bit more seriously, I just kind of have this bias against short films, and I can't control it. <laughs> I just, uh, I would, <laughs> I would rather just watch a feature rather than like a handful of short films. I think... I personally get my money's worth more that way. That's funny. I have a question, and it's, do you guys think that you get a whole lot out of watching the very early 19th century, you know, one one or two minute short films? You mean 20th um, century? No. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen any of the 19th century, early 19th century ones, um, but... Uh, oh, no, I mean the early... Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, early, That's early films in the 19th century. Do you guys think that you get anything out of that? Or yeah. do you think that watching just one is enough to get an idea of what that era was like? You mean like the train arriving at the station yeah, and the workers yeah. leaving the factory, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I've seen a couple uh, in my early film class. And I don't know, I've seen enough. <laughs> like, obviously, they're important for preservation and the history mm -hmm. of film, but I'm not going to go out of my way to YouTube a 30-second short film from 1898. That's fine. <laughs> I, I think I got to disagree with you there, because, at least for me, I think it's an interesting look at what people viewed as entertainment back then. Right, so, like, there's the Thomas Edison short where you watch an elephant get electrocuted to death, right? And... Back then, that was probably really interesting to see and not um, horrific <laughs> as it is now to watch this elephant just, just die, right? And there's a little drama with that elephant that you can look into. It's, it's insane. But um, stuff like that, I think, is important to figure out where uh, movies come from because it starts out as like such a crapshoot of let's just shoot something and see what happens uh so there you go <laughs> enjoy whatever it may be so interesting to me um 
just like how mundane some of the things that they chose to film are. I mean, like an elephant getting electrocuted is definitely one of the more, I guess, like, I don't want to say it's exciting, but like something that's a little more out of the ordinary to watch on film. Mm-hmm. But things would just be like, you know, people walking around or a train coming right. or people leaving a building. Those are just like really mundane scenes that you're like, couldn't I just go like watch that in real life? And <laughs> it might be just like coming to this realization that like people had never seen a picture move before. Right. Um, and that was something that was really unusual in itself. Um, I mean, that's mostly the value I get out of it. I I don't think that they're worth like going and binging a hundred of them. <laughs> um, but it's interesting to see like um, try to put yourself in their shoes and kind of understand how new the medium was. Yeah, I think you have to remember that uh, aside from the Edison and Kinetoscope, we have the Lumiere brothers. Uh, developed an even better uh the cinematograph uh basically the first true movie projector kind of this all-in-one device that could expose film develop the negative and project it but they were originally photographers like they didn't think of cinema as some narrative telling device they wanted to just capture reality uh and they didn't see a vision for cinema like kind of unlike edison uh who did so this was i guess why if some of those early lumiere shorts in particular are kind of just eh, whatever. It's really all that they they thought that film was capable of. Um, it's kind of interesting, at least when you look at these early 1900 ones. Uh, so you you kind of have cinema going in multiple different directions. It's kind of this time of you know it's creativity. There's not no one really knows how to make movies, uh, and you know people. You have George Millier who made these really fantastical stories. Uh, his films kind of didn't win out in the end. It, the film moved towards a more realistic uh, type of narrative, you know, stuff like Edwin Porter was making. Um, things like The Great Train Robbery turn, turned out to be a lot more similar to the types of silent movies that were made right after. So, yeah, it's just, it's this really interesting kind of a fork in the road or this this kind of this point in time where you didn't really know what was coming next. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Melier because... I want to point out he's he's kind of the exception for me. I do like a lot of his early stuff because he really pushed, like, with his imagination, he pushed things as far as they could go. And a lot of his stuff really still holds up to this day. And it's easy to see why stuff like that would be considered, you know, so revolutionary and so fantastical because it still kind of is today. No, I agree. Yeah, uh a point about Millier is he basically kind of pioneered uh, or he codified like all the different special effects used in film, basically up until CGI. So like he did things like yeah, stop motion, multiple exposure, mm-hmm. uh, all these different techniques, uh, things that basically a modern green screen could do uh, without the modern green screen. So like he, he filmed actors and objects in front of like a black background and used a second exposure to record the background, stuff like stuff like that, which, you know, it's pretty insane once you think about yeah. it. This is basically how movies are made today, but like, and he figured years. it out so early too, yeah. which is. I find that with him, like often narratively, there isn't much there. Which I mean, it's before you know film was really being used as a complex narrative tool, um, but it is really amazing to especially view before even the turn of the twentieth century, right? Like, you know, using all these different techniques and. Um, a lot of set building and uh, costuming. Um, 
I think that was definitely one of the really early creative forces <laughs> in cinema, um, kind of pushing for it more as an art form, even if I find that sometimes they're a little like nonsensical or fantastical for me today. That's what makes them good. Exactly. Uh... <laughs> so that's the thing that we can transition to is, so when a lot of people think of silent movies, they just think of something in black and white. And that's also really not the case, right? A lot of silent movies were tinted or colored. That's true. And that's a huge process that sounds like the worst time-consuming thing in the world. <laughs> Individually <laughs> painting each frame uh, to get a certain color out um, or simply tinting the entire film itself a certain color, right? Like when uh, a lot of silence, when they go to nighttime, they just tint the whole film blue. So you know that it's nighttime, quote unquote. Yeah, and I think that's really cute. And I like yeah, it, <laughs> it is right. Yeah. See, uh, getting into silent films, I knew that they were supposed to have a musical uh, score attached to them, but I had no idea that there was any color component to silent films. And I think the first time I saw it, it really kind of amazed me and was really unexpected. I think that a lot of people have had that experience the first time that they watch a silent film and it suddenly is like blue or red. Mm-hmm. You're like, whoa, I thought that it was black and white. And um, it's really interesting the ways that they use that. Of course, sometimes it's a very like, yeah, like practical uses and be like, well, they had to, you know, film these things in daylight to have enough light to operate the cameras and everything. So it's hard to show that it's nighttime besides, you know, tinting the film blue. Um, But sometimes I think, especially with like German expressionist works, that it's like a very much like creative choice Mm -hmm. and there's like a lot of exciting color tinting things going on and also like if you've never seen a like painted silent film with you know all sorts of colors painted in a specific spot it really is kind of a fun experience um like that one of the dancing and the what's that one called and the dress changes colors it's like really Uh, kind of cool to watch yes yeah Yeah. that's a fantastic example of it yeah i mean about 1910 most silent films were getting some kind of tinting or toning done. So it was it was a very common thing to expect after a certain point. Um, the other big kind of big invention is the title cards or the inner title cards. Right? I think by 1903 or so, they had been pretty much confirmed as a thing to expect in every movie. But uh, something I always think about and kind of laugh at is right before we had title cards to explain what someone was saying you would have people in the theater who would just talk to you about what was going on uh i think in the uk they were called barkers uh and in (laughs) japan they had a different name i think they went by um oh how do you say it uh yes yep and they would literally just describe the movie as it was going on and that was like expected and wanted and I, i just think it's funny that that i i just can't picture watching a movie that way yeah, and that's another part of the silent film experience that, like, you just can't really replicate. Um, and, you know, you might watch something and be like, I'm so confused, what is the plot <laughs> of this? And, like, have to remember that someone was there explaining right. it to you. Um, and that you're not really watching it in its originally intended form, if that's the kind of thing that it was meant for. Right, I think the, uh, what I do think is interesting is silent films and movies in general is kind of viewed as like a strictly American thing, which it definitely does become American first. But for these early years, it was all France, for the most part, really pushing the limit of the uh, art form. 
And I think France had the first like really big film companies that you could recognize with uh, Pate and Gaumont. Uh, and those two, they were making movies very consistently all the way up to World War One. I. I think they had, I think by 1904, 1903, they had like 2K movies under their belt already released. Damn. So they, they were really pushing the yeah. medium out like crazy. But uh, yeah, yeah, then... Uh, Italy <laughs> a little bit as well. Some of the early... Right, it was mostly Europe once really yeah. pushing yeah. the medium here. But... Uh, yeah, then we can talk about World War One era, and that kind of ruins European cinema for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think I think that some of that it comes from the prevalence of like Hollywood and like the, you know, the influence of Hollywood on a global scale right. later, um, and like associating kind of all filmmaking with the United States and kind of overlooking the early work that was done in the in film as a medium in europe before um the united states really jumped in yeah there's one other thing with the war is uh these european countries that had to go to war they so cinema like the the chemicals used to produce celluloid were actually the same used right. to make gunpowder so that's why these european countries basically stopped making movies around the time of world war one whereas america was like we can just pump keep right. pumping it out uh, and they basically cinema prospered and they got like almost total control of the international market yeah, that's why most movies by the end of world war one were just all american films coming in uh, it took a long time for europe to come back to any kind of form and then right world war ii hits so it's just a constant buffer of wars on the film industry in uh in europe which is unfortunate i don't know when we should jump into uh birth of a nation <laughs> dw griffith time yeah i think that it's really hard to discuss the american or the emergence of the american film industry without talking about that especially um in the pre-world war one era <laughs> or at the start of that that movie is 12 reels long three hours massively racist and so epic and on a scale that had never really been seen before. Now, Griffith definitely had his influences from Italy uh, and France, but he really reached a new height of what could be possible with uh, not only a movie camera, but like movies as a concept with Birth of a Nation. And mm -hmm. it is unfortunate that something so vile is so integral to the history of movies because you can't not talk about it. It's too important it set too many standards it set too many expectations uh i mean it, it was the first true big event movie that you could go see right they, I mean, they even changed how much it cost to go see it it was so big to go experience right like normally it cost a nickel to see a movie well they charge two dollars instead to go see birth of a nation that's how important it was <laughs> cost more money um yeah yeah, first movie with an orchestral, like a right. live orchestra there to perform. So it was like it set exactly. the tone like They went on the whole roadshow across the country, going to big theaters, right, the whole yeah. thing. It was it was a big deal. And what's funny is we don't actually have the original movie. Uh, when it was first shown, uh, Griffith was like, well, I could probably cut some scenes down because he got a lot of complaints. So what we actually have been, like what we have available is like the 1921 re-release of the movie 
So we don't necessarily even have the full experience, which I think is a little too bad, but that's okay. Yeah, I think that watching um, 1910s films that they, I've said this before in other places, that I feel like they fall into two categories of kind of films that might have some cool effects or like some cool technical skills, but the plots are pretty bare bones um, or films that are just like try to be really over the top and like take on a lot of um, they're just like incredibly ambitious with the medium. Um, and I think that like Birth of a Nation is like a real example of a really ambitious film that I can understand why it was so successful because I don't think that it really like falters in any spot. I mean, besides racism, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, like a lot of his other thing. films, they kind of have some like narrative faltering or they don't quite succeed at everything that they plan out. And you watch Birth of a Nation, or at least for me, I watched Birth of a Nation and I was like, there's no like narrative stumbles. There are no like, it was just, it flew by incredibly fast. And it's like really unfortunate that it's just like, horrible content because of how expertly it's crafted um it's just like paced really great and um i don't know it's there's just something about it that you can like understand how important it was when you look at it compared to other films from that era um but of course like the content it's really unforgivable the influence that it had yes. On the American nation, because at that point, like the KKK was basically non existent. Um, and the film basically brought that institution back, um, which is really awful and horrible and the influence that it had. And it was incredibly controversial at the time that it was released. It's not even just today that we think is racist. Like people thought it was racist in 1915. Which really says something. So, yeah, I should say. Okay. Yeah, if your film is considered racist in 1915. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, to pick up on a few of those points. Yeah, I, I think the, the fluidity and the narrative maturity of Birth of a Nation, it's, it's really unparalleled mm -hmm. in 1910 cinema. It's really yeah. just far and away ahead of its time. I think perhaps maybe the best composed movie of its time. Definitely. Uh, he, he, maybe not the first in a lot of aspects, if you want to dig into, you know, some of the Italian epics. Uh, but he's, Griffith was the one to synthesize them into something so mm -hmm. ambitious. And yeah. And I think with the whole, you know, KKK revival, uh, my point is is that if the film weren't so powerful and well made, you know, I don't think the KKK at least would have revived to that same extent. It really shows the power yeah. of exactly. movies. Uh, it, too bad, just for the wrong reason. But there's, yeah. I mean, Birth of a Nation is the reason we have Hollywood. I would say, I mean, it made mm -hmm. so much money for all of its distributors and Griffith himself. It just it was it was able to fund the Hollywood that we know. Uh, mm -hmm. like I think Cecil Diva Mill was one of the distributors and he made a million dollars just on distribution rights alone from that. So it, he was able to establish modern Hollywood studio system because of this movie and how successful it was. Yeah. And I think it's really the reason that cinema became something that was taken seriously before then it wasn't really taken that seriously right. and like the fact that it had such an important influence on 
um, the United States is really kind of the reason that it became something that was taken seriously as a medium, which is really kind of unfortunate, but just the, the way things are, I believe. I'm pretty sure it was the first film shown in the White House and things like really that. Was. I mean, it's really this yeah. like ingrained in um, American history for a variety of reasons for in film history and also just like American history as a whole. Can I say one good unintended effect it had? <laughs> it, it, it's actually spurred African-American filmmakers to produce works like that more accurately and fairly depicted mm -hmm. That's uh, right. black life. Hey, there America. you go. That's something. So filmmakers like Oscar yep. Michaud uh, were able to have their, their voices basically heard, um, not unfortunately to the same degree, uh, but you know, one of his films within our gates, I think is always one that I'd recommend to see alongside Birth of a Nation to, to get the opposite right. perspective. Um, um, fun yeah. little racist uh, thing about that. So within our gates, uh, well, so here, so when, <laughs> in the inner titles for that movie, um, when they show the word Negro, it's always capitalized. Um, and this was a specific choice because back then being called that word was normal and accepted, right? But if you're going to be called that, you might as well capitalize it. So the movie is a great like representation of not only like what relations were like back then, but even like from the black community, how they saw themselves in film and what they were supposed to be representing as just like as an example of what that movie is like. So I just got done watching this movie before we started recording this. <laughs> oh, okay, nice. Yeah. Birth of a Nation, right? Not, oh, yes, not yes. Birth of a Nation. And uh, I don't know. Maybe I just have a bias against it because it's so horribly racist, but I can't agree with you guys that it's like that extremely well made. I, I found it, like Elena said, the pace, it went by super quick for her. It was the opposite for me. I was just right. like so Damn. bored <laughs> watching this freaking movie. Yeah, it did make me look bad. <laughs> I, I think it's honestly just a lot of film stuff that you take for granted now is being yes, established uh, with this I was, movie. I was about to say, it was hard to tell like what kind of yeah. techniques the movie was exactly like. Uh, what's the word? It was inventing, I guess. Right. Well, I think the biggest thing that Griffith really used well was parallel editing. That was such a big, a big choice for how a movie was made. And parallel editing is when you cut between like two different spaces in the same time frame. So that's something that every single movie now does, and you yeah. don't even think about it because it's so common. Yeah, exactly. But back then, I, that was brand new. I didn't even think about it, and like it, I don't know. It was hard to make an impression on me that this was the first movie to do it. So maybe that's another reason. Maybe this is an experience that other people didn't have, but even just beyond a technical standpoint and from a narrative standpoint, like there were parts where it's just like a really effective propaganda tool, which I think that is easier for us to see through now because it's something that we don't really, I mean, obviously, hopefully don't sympathize with. Um, but like the first part of it, it's, it's just like really Confederate apologist and like, mm -hmm gross in that way and details a lot of the civil war but the way that like the characters are painted and like the you know atmosphere is created like it definitely also like prompts this like emotional connection that's not really like 
common in a lot of those early films. And you can see why I was so effective there because there were parts where I was like, I found myself feeling a certain way. And then I'd be like, this is really gross that it's like such an effective propaganda right. tool. I mean, I wasn't like falling for it really <laughs> because I know, <laughs> I know that it's, what it's depicting is like, I mean, obviously it's like horrible, but the way that like just everything is painted, like you can just understand how influential it was from like a narrative and emotional standpoint. Um, yeah I, I don't know there's just something about all of that it's just you can understand or at least for me I I felt that I could understand its influence when I was seeing it because before I watched it myself just people are like oh yeah it's the racist movie which yeah it's the <laughs> racist movie um but there is it just compared to other films of the era it's like i guess i can i just felt that i needed to like see it myself to kind of understand its influence right yeah if you're going at it from that emotional perspective i guess i can kind of understand it even though i yeah. i didn't feel any of those yeah, I'd be curious myself i'd be curious to hear about what you like to more about Griffith's next feature, aside oh. from the <laughs> his response, uh, since right. you saw them within yeah. close proximity. Yeah. I will make one last point about Birth of a Nation, I guess, which is a good segue. Um, the American Film Institute, AFI, uh, ranked this originally in its 1998 top 100 American movies 1998. Uh, at 44th. In 1998, so as recent as, yeah, just you know, a few years ago, uh, it, they subsequently, in its 10th year anniversary, they replaced it with Intolerance. Uh, his next feature. Uh, so I, I just found that really interesting that this whole reevaluation is mm -hmm. even pretty recent. Definitely. Yeah. That people were willing to overlook these, these very problematic elements of this movie uh, just yeah. because of how important it was. So. And I hope anyways. that when I say like things that are, you know, very uh, skilled in its filmmaking that people don't like interpret that the wrong way. I mean, like the content is really horrible, but um yeah there i i don't really feel like intolerance oh there are some parts of intolerance that i thought were better than the birth of a nation in its you know skills and whatever but um i for those of you who like don't know intolerance is kind of like the follow-up to birth of a nation and it's kind of about how we should all love each other <laughs> yeah, and yeah. hating each other yeah. is bad, um, which is kind of the way that I feel about that is like you, the damage has been done. Like your movie was responsible for bringing back the KKK. Um, I'm sorry that I kind of like, don't really buy into this narrative. Well, that's that you think. So, I don't know. So, uh, there, yeah. So actually that's interesting. Uh, after Birth of a Nation, uh, he got huge public backlash, right? And Griffith actually fought against this. Mm -hmm. He published a pamphlet, yes. which I'm not joking, is actually called The Rise and Fall of Free Speech in America. <laughs> yeah. He went on a crusade. Published in 1915, <laughs> basically censorship, or you could say intolerance. Uh, so basically, I think Griffith's intolerance has been given a misleading kind of context of being an, an apology for Birth of a Nation, Griffith okay. did not apologize yeah. at all. He felt he had nothing to apologize for. And in fact, he said that the critics were the intolerant. Okay. This is his response. So, it's like, a oh, fuck you, basically, to all of the people saying, yeah, you. okay. <laughs> I mean, I just, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, but it, it, I mean, it is sort of about, 
well, I'll just say what I th- I think about it. If you need to be like a few minutes to talk about it, because I feel like I have a lot to say, um, because it's like four narratives pieced together, and there's one that's kind of like contemporary to when the film was made, sort of, I think, um, and then there are three that are they're very like kind of Christian or biblical in some way, and they're kind of like about these like you know struggles between people and how those conflicts lead to you know the their downfall which i think is kind of it's a really like bizarre contrast to birth of a nation which basically argues like is basically like oh we're you know being tolerant of or you know i don't even know how to put it it's basically just like we have to protect like good southern white women and it's like but what you know so it's really kind of was bizarre to me that the argument in intolerance is it felt to me like these conflicts that are like lead to human downfall which was really not at all what birth of a nation said um i mean i watched intolerance what? first uh so that okay <laughs> maybe that's why that wasn't such an issue for me oh that's interesting yeah it was just a really like bizarre take i suppose you could be like, oh, Griffith never apologized for Earth Nation and, like, doubled down. It's just really weird. But, um, it's, it is one of those where it's, it takes on a lot more than it can handle. It's, like, about three hours long again, but there are these four narratives that are juggled that it's really not paced all that well, and a lot of the, um, there's some, like, really great sets and costuming, especially with, like, the Babylon setting, but because they put so much work into that set, they really show that plot line way more than any of the other plot lines. And some of the plot lines, I'm just they should have just been cut. Like there's really no purpose for them to be there. And the whole thing just felt like a little bit of a jumbled mess to me, even though oh it it's it's so ambitious in its scale. Um but I think Jeff said this to me before about like like intolerance was like a flop. <laughs> it was not successful, and I yeah. can kind of understand why. I guess it's, it's very right? challenging. It confused the hell out. It of confused people. It confused me watching it. <laughs> there were so many things happening. There's this woman with a cradle. Now we're in Babylon. Now we're in France, and now these people are fighting. And there's like all these like crazy. And then there are like two thousand people in the shot. France disappears and for it's like, minutes. what is? Yeah, that we don't hear about one of the plot lines for half an hour. It's really like, and then it has this like weird message. Like we should. It's just like really bizarre. I find it really weird that that's the film. They're, like people were like, oh, gr- like Birth of a Nation is a really well crafted film, and then they were like, oh, we shouldn't promote this film because it's really racist. And so then they, like, replace it with intolerance. And it's, like, intolerance is just... I mean, it has a lot of ambition, and it really tries to do a lot. But it's just, it's just like, I understand why people were confused. It's just, it's not cohesive to me. <laughs> um, I still gave it an 8 out of 10, I think. It just has a lot of... It, the sets and some of the scenes and the battles are really great. Um, but narratively, I was like, right I, again, like just like tone it down. Right, you think of James Cameron's Titanic or like the Avengers, like all these big tentpole movies, right? That are just big and uh, just insane. 
filming. Like right? generational is, events. Right. This is mm-hmm. even more than that. Like the scale of intolerance is, I don't think it's matched by any other movie. Yeah, I would I've agree. Ever seen. I would agree. I think that that's a big claim, yeah, but, but it's truly it, that really is what like, it is. Like, like, like Alina said, 2000 extras for like, you're just walking down the street scene. Like it's totally unnecessary. No, but, but they're all like the choreographed time. dancing too. And like yes, yeah. every <laughs> single inch of the frame, there's different people doing different things. And it's all like, right. it feels like you've literally transported the camera to that time. It's insane. Yes. It, it is quite a spectacle. Yeah. I wanted to point out one other aspect. So, I guess from my experience, I was never super confused watching it. Uh, I think one thing the movie does really well is its use of tinting, yeah. actually. So we, we talked about mm-hmm. it representing like different times of the day, whether you're inside or outside. I think Griffith used it maybe the best I've seen of yeah, any silent film, where he used one color for each of his storylines. And in a way such that you're able to kind of unconsciously know when or kind of where you are and he would use the shot of the cradle mm-hmm. like to kind of connect different when he was cutting from one to another. So at least for my money, I think it was about as well told as it could have been, uh, minus you know the issue of some narratives being more fleshed out than others. I think there's a mm-hmm. big disparity between, say, the modern story, the Babylon story, and the other two. Yeah. Um, so. Right. Like there's the Jesus storyline. Yeah. It's so short. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's barely yeah. in the film. That's the other thing is even if you know where it's going, sometimes you've already forgotten that plot line. It just hasn't been fleshed out. You just don't remember who the characters are. Um, I think, you know, the sets and the costumes are fleshed out enough that you're like, okay, we're in um, France now. But it's sometimes you just don't remember what was going on. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's more of a structural issue than a pacing issue. For me, like the two hours, 15 minutes, it went by pretty quick. I didn't notice it. Um, okay, so let's um, now that we've kind of talked about like a general review of early cinema and definitely American cinema, let's talk about some like other smaller movements that were going on during like the late tens and early twenties. Uh, a lot of it not in America. Um, like we can talk about French Impressionism, which is definitely one of my favorite little moments of cinema. I would say it didn't last very long. It was maybe like. 10 years max if that um but what's just interesting film choices and creative use of editing and lighting and all from just a tiny little area of france yeah i guess i i guess i should start off saying that it's kind of a dubious name a little bit uh i think a lot of these filmmakers that kind of is fall under this umbrella term don't have a lot of things in common. They do very innovative things, but the mm-hmm. techniques are, and the styles are very different. Uh, but yeah, I think in general, their approach to nonlinear editing, their innovative use of lighting, and they, a lot of them have attempts at portraying like dream sequences and fantasies, other just right. ingenious methods of telling a story from like POV, different POVs and stuff like that. So yep. yeah, uh, w- some of my favorite films come, I guess, in this umbrella uh genre uh so uh i guess one filmmaker in particular i guess we can get right to him is abel Gantz. um and yes uh, i think he'll come up a bit more in the second part of this podcast uh but yeah two of his films the only two of his films i've seen 
but that I both love are uh, his, his 1919 war epic uh, Jacques or Accuse, and his 1927 mm -hmm. biopic of Napoleon, uh, which actually, I guess when I say biopic, I mean part one <laughs> of what six <laughs> never. It, yes, yeah, it never happened, happened. but uh, <laughs> it was this huge ambitious so project and he only got to tell the very beginning of his life. So, yeah, um, yes. I, I love that about Gantz is that even at 90 years old, he was still trying to make it happen. He, he was trying so hard for that to be a whole picture. He wanted it so yeah, bad. Really I think he's one of those yeah. filmmakers to me that um, really is one of the ambitious ones that matches up with some of the ambition that uh, maybe Griffith had in the United States. Um, just because I've only seen IQs, but it's like a really huge production. And some of the shots in it, it, it does have like a little bit of like narrative wonkiness that can be expected from some of those like really ambitious 1910s films. It's also like about three hours. Um, but some of the shots from it are like just my favorite shots from like all of cinema as a whole. Like it really has some like amazing moments. And it's really kind of like a, a difficult and emotional watch because it's about World War One and was filmed around World War One. Um, and uses mm -hmm. so like soldiers as extras, and I I think that's a very like unique thing. Yeah, it's a very powerful experience watching that movie. I mean the the scene I always think about is like all the crosses. Yeah. yeah. Just I mean that's mm -hmm. so uh, very yeah. visceral reaction to that. Yeah, it comes back to I guess I think silent films at their best are visceral experiences. They're mm -hmm. ones where mm -hmm. the visuals. I mean. You don't need sound to, no. to make the sort of visual impression. Uh, and I think with Gantz in particular in this, this movie, uh, yeah, some of those shots, uh, just using double exposure, these, this, yeah, the, the scene with the crosses in particular, uh, there were a bunch of skeletons. Oh, yeah, skeletons you, did, you, you didn't like the skeletons. Uh, <laughs> yes. You thought they were <laughs> dumb. You overused them a tad. So, uh, yeah. I thought they were fun. I'm sorry. Reminded me of the skeleton dance, uh, Walt Disney's skeleton dance, yeah. uh, a little oh, bit later. Funny. But uh, I can yeah. see that. It was just charming. But yeah. the shot of the crosses. I mean, I think that's the banner for the film on Letterbox, which is the entire reason that I watched it. It really is like a brilliant example right. of visual storytelling, where like absolutely no words were needed to explain that. I like I saw that shot on the Letterbox banner, and I was I knew that I had to watch it, um, which just speaks to how powerful it is. Yeah, I think I have more to say about Jacuzzi, but we'll I would, save it. You know, spoilers. We might. No, we'll save, save that it. for the next. Yeah, we will be talking about it a little bit more later. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, so I guess Jeff and I are the only ones who've seen Napoleon. I think. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't. I believe so. I yeah. don't think Iggy. Yeah, it's a little long. I don't long, think so. uh, I have plans for it in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Seven-hour window <laughs> to watch. Yeah. Uh, Iggy, you're telling me you don't have seven hours for French silent film? <laughs> I've already spent my seven hours of French silent films on Le Vampire. Oh, there you go. Didn't even talk about him. <laughs> but they fly by for Napoleon, I gotta say. Like, it is a long experience, but it just flies by. Okay, Jeff, you, you know me pretty pretty well. Do you think I would like it? I think so. I mean, the movie is, again, it's on an epic scale like Intolerance. 
um, just in a different way, uh, I would say. It's not like you've got big battles and uh, things like that, but it's really about... Yeah, I was going like, to say, I would, I would imagine himself. it feels more personal um, since it's not like four stories, but instead like yeah, the story of one guy. I, I kind of would say it's like uh, the war film panel oh, I love that. in some ways. <laughs> Where it, it is, it is a war movie, but it is very yeah. much about okay, that, the general. That makes me very interested. Yeah, um, to check it out. Yeah, I, I'd highly recommend it. I think the only thing uh, the film did, I think, towards the end, uh, after the French Revolution segment, uh, basically there's a large, long segment of Napoleon and I think his wife, and I don't know, some of that dragged on a little bit too long for me. But I mean, aside from that, I think. Remarkable film. Lots of incredible different camera techniques, stuff that, yes. and lots of stuff that he couldn't do because of the limited technology at the time. Uh, but, right. yeah. I mean, the movie was so big, they had to project it on three different screens. Oh, yes. But it, it was That's... insane, again, how, how Definitely one of the more ambitious is. filmmakers of the silent era, for sure. Yes. I mean, I was saying this, I think, earlier to you guys, right? I always put these directors of that time period so far away in time but abel gantz lived until the 80s so th th he was around for a lot of the current directors that we know and love today Did he so, like stop making movies or what happened with him yes well right he really wanted to make these big epic movies right? <laughs> but no one really wants to fund that after a certain point and he's also i get the general vibe from interviews with him that he's kind of a hard ass and that definitely affects a lot of business decisions in that world like if you're not a fun director to work with it's going to be tough to get people to work for you and put a lot of money up for you so that definitely no one wanted help. to watch like 30 hours of napoleon content that's the real reason no one funded him right unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> yeah if if there is a sad kind of common theme to all these silent auteurs i think it's that their fall from being these directors with huge budgets being able to make movies a lot of them just fell out because of either the studio system in hollywood uh things mm -hmm. like you know they with, gearing towards a more commercialized industry their place in filmmaking kind of just got lost in you know, left behind. So uh, this will come up again with other directors that we'll talk about that just kind of unfortunately faded due to uh, reasons like this. Um, some even for political reasons, um, which I might get to shortly. No, I mean, like uh, Griffith, right? After uh, Intolerance didn't do well, yep. he pretty much left the scene. That, that was it. He was gone. Yeah, he made some features, I think, on, on his own, uh, he had a different production company for some of his later ones, but he was yeah much mm -hmm. more of a, a, a smaller love figure at that point uh, in the industry. Yeah, okay. So we can talk about uh, German Expressionism. That's probably my favorite yeah. of all the ones. <laughs> I think that's a lot of people's favorites. Yeah, that's probably the most popular one. I would yeah. say people most yeah. recognize that, right? Most, yeah. That era. And, and I will say, I think if people who are not regular silent film watchers, the ones that they have seen usually are either like American slapstick films, you know, like Charlie Chaplin and all of that, or it's like German expressionist mm -hmm. stuff. 
Oh, so the German expression right. is, is definitely like one of the more popular. All right, I mean the Kevin Caligari, yep. um, all of Fritzling stuff, Murnau's work, truly, again, inventive visual choices with the camera and editing. Like, and the sets. The sets. And they're really like yes, spooky. Yeah, I mean, or most what? of them are pretty spooky, I think. Um, and this is like your your Nosferatu yes. stuff. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the set the set design for a lot of German expressionist films is just like amazing. Um, I think that visually they're some of the best. Yeah, I guess I just to set the stage a little bit. Uh, we talked about how European countries lagged America in World War One. Uh, German, the German film industry especially lagged other European countries. Um, and they depended on imported films, which were largely anti-German propaganda. So uh, what happened was Germany basically merged uh, all the, the central production distribution and exhibition companies into one singular government subsidized conglomerate uh, called the UFA uh, or Universum Film something. Uh, and basically they wanted to upgrade German films, make, and they invested heavily and they made this whole golden age of German cinema. Uh, so that's where yep. you got these creative directors to to make, you know, these these really extravagant, very artistically, you know, wonderful films. Um, and the doctor, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, is kind of at the forefront of this whole movement uh, with how it embodied disturbed, you know, psychological mm -hmm. states through decor and makeup. Um, it really feels like. It really feels like you're inside like a carnival funhouse watching that one. And there's like a lot of interesting color choices and like, it's very much like not naturalistic, I would say in terms of it's like atmosphere. Yeah. There's a lot of fantasy. Yeah. There's a lot of fantasy in this, mm -hmm. in this era, in this movement. And it's, it's really quite wonderful because a lot of early silent is so like, here's real life or like, here's a documentary about, yeah. some people in the snow or so there's not German it takes a little bit for fantasy <laughs> yeah <so. laughs> like something as big as like yeah. metropolis right like i oh. think metropolis is like one of the biggest sets and like um yeah i mean that's probably the most one of the more recognizable, recognizable. silent yeah. films I don't think many people have necessarily seen it, but they definitely know what they've it definitely is like seen the poster and they know the vibe. Yes. Um, and I think that the sets, oh, I was gonna say, I think that the sets and like the uh, style of it is a little more like artistically or. Exp I don't want to say that the other ones aren't artistic, but I think that they're more what we think of when we say that they might be like more artistically inclined and not so realistic. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, and even if people haven't seen Metropolis, they've seen everything that has been influenced by Metropolis. Mm -hmm. There would be no Star Wars or Alien right. or Blade Runner yeah, without for Metropolis sure. first. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's such an important movie to sci-fi mm -hmm. genre. Yeah. It's another one on just I like think... a massive scale. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, for me at least, the dystopic vision of the future where you have this kind of you know, unbridled capitalist society and right. this whole workers' revolt. Uh, it's, I think, one of the most effective uses of science fiction as like social commentary. And even if it's very like on the yes, nose, so. very, uh, you know, direct, I think it, it's like a masterpiece and, and 
the themes it communicates. Uh, so, mm -hmm. I agree with you. Well, so speaking of revolutionary tendencies, uh, let's talk about Soviet montage stuff. Uh, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of at the end of the silent era, to be honest. Like Soviet montage, Soviet film in general is very strange because the revolution really uh, screws up cinema in Russia for a while, and it takes them a while to get sound even. So they, they have a long time to just sit there and come up with things on their own. And the Soviet montage films are very, uh, I guess, intense yeah. <laughs> would be my word for them. They're, they're big movies, even though they're not necessarily Yeah, long. they're definitely dense. And, I mean, it's pretty safe to say that they're basically all, like, propaganda tools. I mean, lots of other... I mean, obviously, like, a lot of these films are propaganda tools. You could say, you know, Birth of a Nation is a propaganda tool. Um, but I think mm -hmm. to us, as, like, so removed from the early Soviet Union, they're pretty obviously propaganda tools. Um, but there's a lot of, like, talent and creativity in their creation as well. Um, but they're composed very differently than a lot of other silence and they're very like collective focus um i don't really know enough to explain the whole like theory behind montage i don't know if anyone else knows enough to do that um they kind of hurt my head but they're very like again like visceral experiences <laughs> well right so much of modern editing techniques come from this era uh like the uh very famous Khrushchev uh effect right where it it's uh the idea that uh, a film sequence is determined by the consequence of juxtaposing like different shots so you see a picture of a cat and then the next editing picture you see is a man smiling so oh so he he's he likes seeing the cat um that 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 kind of stuff is where a lot of um uh the whole russian movement is working on is, is editing techniques like that yes uh that was as the name of the effect is is based off the the great teacher uh russian teacher lev kuleshov uh who had some very famous students you might have heard of uh sergey eisenstein yeah. being one of them uh and so just to talk a little bit about the propaganda i guess aspect of this this was basically a movement that picked up around the uh, whole revolution, the 1917 revolution, uh, where Bolshevik overthrew the Tsarist government. Uh, and Russia was basically this huge, you know, uncontrollable collection of just millions of people. And Lenin thought of a way or needed a way to like kind of unify them. And so he was really one of the first to understand film's importance and power as propaganda. And people didn't need like literacy to understand, you know, what you're seeing on screen. They didn't need to know to read, but anyone could see the images and have, you know, can understand what, what you're seeing. And basically the mass distribution of film enabled being able to reach so many people. Um, so the film industry got nationalized and basically that they, they wanted filmmakers to make pro Russian films, uh, anti Tsarist, uh, but you know, things that would yeah. show the, the current government in a positive light uh, in particular. I would so. say like pro-Soviet on the whole, it's not like a spe specific to Russia thing. I mean, because you have like um, Dovzhenko working in uh, Ukraine as well and founding some like film studios that are in modern day Ukraine. And you also like had some uh, 
I mean, I don't know if they're strictly montage, but like some silent films emerging out of Georgia as well, um, which were kind of like the other two hubs of filmmaking in the Soviet Union. Um, but yeah, it's, I think that it was really interesting that they, the government identified so, so uh, intensely that film would be a really important tool for like disseminating a lot of this like pro-Soviet um, ideology. And that's why they're just like, they're just really intense and like collective and like, I don't even know how to explain it besides they're just like about, you know, the masses a lot of the time. And sometimes they like have a focus of like another individual storyline. Like I think that uh, uh, Putovkin's film Mother is a little more like individually focused versus some of the things that you might see from like Eisenstein. But um, Putovkin, another one of uh, Kuleshov's students. Mm -hmm. So basically yes. they're the two big students of, of Kuleshov who made some yeah. of the great Russian works. I have not seen any by Podovkin. I really want to. Uh, one other thing, I just a connection to make to, to Griffith. Uh, so Intolerance, as we alluded to, bombed at the box office and in America, um, but not overseas. Uh, the Russians in particular loved Griffith and Intolerance uh, among his films. Mm -hmm. And what Kuleshov did was he taught, he used Intolerance as a way to teach film editing and this whole montage theory. So as Griffith basically was the one to use parallel editing and shortening of shots uh, before the Soviet school, but he basically kind of inspired this whole generation of Soviet filmmakers to, to make these montage films. Uh, and so one, one, I guess one little interesting factoid, uh, Kuleshov apparently as an, an, an assignment, he wanted his students to cut intolerance the whole film like as it would as you know so if you imagine intolerance with the you know gazillion cuts in that film <laughs> basically your assignment was you had to recut intolerance um so yeah I, those those students knew that film inside and out um mm -hmm. and i yeah i do think if you want to segue more to eisenstein in particular uh he was perhaps aside from griffith the big pioneer of the silent era uh but maybe to contrast the two, Griffith was a lot more intuitive with approaching narrative editing, but Eisenstein was a lot more of a theorist. Uh, he had mod like modern theory of editing. Uh, he was very intellectual with the way he approached film. Um, and he directed some, I guess, of the, the key works of, of silent cinema. Um, mm -hmm. I know Elena, you said, yeah. was not a huge Eisenstein Yeah, he hurts my fan, head. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> he makes my head hurt. I'm sorry. I mean, his stuff is very interesting from like a film history perspective. Um, uh -huh. They're so dense, yeah. so 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 dense, which I think is like made it difficult for me to get into silent films until I saw you know Passion of Joan of Arc and some of these other ones. Yeah. And I also noticed Iggy. You recently saw Battleship Potemkin. I was just wanted to know some of your thoughts. On yeah, that's uh, one of these old silent mm -hmm. movies that. Going into it, I didn't expect to like it that much, uh, but it was actually, you know, I had seen the famous Odessa Steps sequence in film class before, but, you know, seeing the whole movie prior to that, you know, seeing what led to it, it actually made the whole sequence that much more effective, which makes me question, like, modern film teaching. <laughs> like, students yeah. aren't really getting the full idea <laughs> if they don't watch the whole movie. All um... right. It's such a big emotional moment and you need the context of mm -hmm. 
everything beforehand yeah. to really get I think going back to the point about like why people enjoy silent films still like a hundred years later and how that they're visceral experiences I think that people who enjoy Soviet montage it's like the you know the most extreme version of like visceral experiences this is like there's the intensity and the energy is um really kind of unparalleled in that movement um and so i think if you're looking for like visceral experiences and like really you know dense experience like impactful experiences that might be um, something to look into yeah i definitely mm-hmm. call the Temkin impactful if nothing else and there are Soviet silent films that are not montage, which I think often get a bit overlooked. I think montage is obviously like the biggest movement, um, but there there are little pockets of Soviet films that resemble what you were seeing out of you know the United States um, in terms of you know popular films, uh, and I think that's really bizarre to see when your <laughs> main exposure is montage because there's such like a contrast there. Definitely. I mean, all the early Russian films before the There's revolution pre- yeah. are just completely... The pre-revolution mm-hmm. uh, films, and then also, like, the main one that I've seen is Bed and Sofa, which is kind of like a comedy about... what I, The plot is, like... It's just like a Soviet silent comedy. It's, like, really not, like... um it's not like montage at all so it's really bizarre to see when it was made in the 20s so like after the soviet union was founded um and you also have uh you know some like kind of like more documentary-ish stuff uh from uh what's his name guy who did Pertov. Pertov. um um, man with the movie camera no no the uh the cranes are flying guy oh uh yeah Mick, Mick oh Hale. yeah, Kelatozov. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Kelatozov. Yeah, um, yeah, his like really early films that he made in Georgia that are kind of like, I don't think those are really like montage either, but they're kind of just like documentary stuff. Um, so it's interesting to like explore Soviet silence beyond montage, but montage for sure is like the most influential. Yeah, I guess an accidental segue. Uh, I guess I could talk a little bit about Vertov. Um, so. One interesting thing I didn't know was his name is actually a pseudonym, which means spinning top. His actually, does anyone know his original name? Uh, it's quite funny. His, his name is Dennis Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> he just made up uh, Ziga Vertov, apparently. Um, but yeah, he, he began as a, a propagandist photographer and a newsreel editor. Um, so he was very much... Uh, already learning about uh, how to make propagandist type images and editing, although not from the cinema perspective, but he was basically now kind of conceived as the father of cinema verite, which is this very Mm. self-conscious, realistic documentary movement that uh, really, you know, kind of exploded in the sixties and seventies. But he was one of the very first people to to do that. It's just aiming to, to capture life as it is, right? With like no flourishes. Yeah, um, somewhat. I, although I'd say he, he used a lot of flourishes. Um, yeah, I was going to say, he's like a great direct line to I Am Cuba, yeah. um, which is the yeah. Kaltazov, uh movie. Those two are like, 
brother and sister films. Hmm. Oh, I guess I should check that out. I've not seen I Yeah, I definitely could see I that. Can't count, but... I guess I should check out I Am Cuba then. Oh it's like the only Calatosum I've not seen. <laughs> it's like one of his big films. Okay. I know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Vertov, he basically denounced conventional narrative film. He called it impotent and he wanted it to be replaced with like cinema based on organization of camera recorded like documentary material. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and he made some movies, uh, his big one being Men with a Movie Camera, um, which is this, you could call it like a, a portrait of Moscow from dawn to dusk, but it mm -hmm. kind of leaves out, there's a lot of self-reflexive elements of that film, which I find really interesting. Something unique to this film in particular. I haven't seen many other silent films in particular. Um, yeah, even with other symphony, city symphony type of films, like Walter Ruttman's uh, Berlin Symphony of a Great City, that feels a lot tamer and a lot, a lot less, uh, it doesn't have this element that I think Vertov used quite wonderfully, um, Man with the Movie Camera. I think that movie is a new favorite for me. I just watched it today and I was just blown away. I was just going to ask if we're done with the Soviet montage discussion, um, does anyone have any comments on like non-Western uh, silence or I guess like not American or European um, just because I feel like those get overlooked just because of like how many were lost or how few were made. But I think it's like important to acknowledge that they exist. Right. I mean, during the 20s, Japan is having probably one of the best decades mm -hmm. ever for film. But sadly, we, we just don't yeah. have movies from we, we have a couple but not not much and it's again because of the world wars that we just have yeah. lost so i think i saw something at like mizuguchi's like first like 30 films have been lost or yeah, something that's so sad. which is insane um i mean like ozu was working in the silent era as well so. yeah. i think there was also a big earthquake in the 20s mm -hmm. that just a lot of films were lost at that point i i think the yeah. statistic at least for japanese silence i so somewhere around 4% have survived. Like that's, a, yeah. that's tragically low. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, and it's the same in uh, other Asian countries as well. Like China uh, and India all had film industries, but we have Close to very few yeah. of those, if nothing. Um, yeah. I think with Japan, uh, like besides like the early works of directors that um, are a little more known for their golden age works it's mostly like page of madness is the one that people watch which we don't even have in its complete form um and that's another one that i think people get a little confused because it, it's something that it doesn't have inner titles so it was meant to be kind of narrated over but it's still one of those like wildly experimental works that makes you kind of like feel sad for how much has been what's even been lost of that film but just like what's been lost from like japan's early cinema era as a whole yeah i think Definitely. page of madness it's a good connection to soviet montage mm -hmm. it's rapid editing is really yeah. quite strikingly similar even though i don't know if it was directly influenced or not or if it just happened to be that way um, i know that the director did see fw murnau's the last laugh and that had a yeah. very yeah it influenced the visual style in a way that makes it a little bit reminiscent of german expressionism yeah it's really it's it's another one of those that's just like wildly experimental and like not very realistic i can see the german expressionism connection also of like how kind of like 
paranoid and like mind focus it is um which is really interesting uh yeah, I think the only silent I've seen from China is the goddess. I think that's like one of the only ones. I, there, I think there are more, but it's the most famous. Argentina also is starting to get a serious film industry by the late 20s. Uh, South American general cinema is coming around this time period, but also we just don't have a lot. A lot Actually, there. speaking of Argentina, the very first animated film... Uh, from that country well just in general like the very first animated film ever uh it was also lost it came out in 1917 and it, it was only it only existed for i think like eight years before it was lost in a fire which it's just tragic because that's like the biggest piece of animation history that we're missing right now yeah that is sad that that's kind of a common thread though and something I feel like if you're someone who enjoys silent movies, you have to kind of realize is what we see today is really only because they were popular for the most part. Anything else is just luck or happenstance that we have. Um, It's kind of shocking how much we have lost over time. Um, And even back then there were efforts to save films, but it really... Fire was such a big yeah. issue. Back we, we probably, it really destroyed yeah. so much. We probably. I was just gonna say we really only see what was worth producing lots of copies of, and what was probably like the best of the best. And even then, there are like really big gaps in what yeah, we have. Because the more you got distributed, like the bigger chances you had to survive. Because there's more copies of you. <laughs> yeah. Right, like Metropolis, I feel like is the classic example of how insane it is to find silent films. Right, it had been that movie isn't really the full movie, but what we have is from different prints from all over the world. So what we have is a mix of different countries' versions of the film we just put together. We're only missing amazing. like five minutes or something now, yeah. right? Because we found like thirty minutes of it was found in like an archive in Argentina, I think. I think in Brazil. Um, that added about half an hour to the film. I have, yeah, or maybe in like the early two thousands. But yeah. like added, yeah, yeah, like a hundred years after it was made, and like there are still some of those discoveries being made. Um, but yeah, it is really like unfortunate. Like just like these mass losses of film history is really um, devastating. Yeah, but I feel like that's something cool coming out of this is like there's definitely we're kind of like in a golden age right now when it comes to availability of films and that's been like a big spike in silent film availability and remasters this is like the highest period of we've had stuff like yeah. that happen it's really great that a lot of silence are just available on youtube and then also like there's really great restoration work being done of course the f- films that get restored are the most popular ones and the ones we have the most copies of um, but it's like really sometimes it's just like unbelievable how good some of the restorations are because you're used to seeing things in these like de- deteriorated mm-hmm. grainy quality to see really early works just like absolutely flawlessly restored mm-hmm. yeah um, so I think we should talk about the big elephant in the room with Son of Films and it's sound uh, in general and the coming of sound and what that did to the end of silent films as we know it 
Um, it it's kind of like a controversial transition from late twenties to early thirties, and silent films are basically gone, uh, almost completely, at least from America. Um, and that change was so fast and drastic that it was kind of almost whiplash for movies as an art form. Um, like so, I think the way to think about the transition is it took a while to happen. It wasn't like, right. So everyone knows about the jazz singer, right. Which is like not the first sound movie, but it was definitely the biggest sound movie. Uh, and to even call it a sound movie is a misnomer. It, it was more like they had synchronized noises for one scene in that movie. That movie's also incredibly boring by the way. So I think you could do better for <laughs> watching another movie with, potential different sounds going on but um right so like i think by 1926 warner brothers really pushed out a movie called uh, don juan which is lost so we don't have it but it was the first actual full sound film where it was recorded on a disc and played behind the movie the entire time uh and it did pretty well but uh after that they just went harder and harder and eventually i think by 1930 most films were going to be having full synchronized sound at that point um what is interesting though is it a lot of the movies in the late 20s and early 30s had sound versions and silent versions like uh, all quiet on the western front right which is a wonderful war movie has a sound version and silent film version because movie theaters just didn't have the sound system soaked up yet. And it's also why right, like Russia took so long to, uh, and other countries to get out of like the silent film eras because they just didn't have the technology or the money to get sound yet. Oh, Mike, would you like to share your thoughts about the jazz singer? <laughs> I know that you have opinions on the early sound era. <laughs> uh, so I guess, uh, well, I did watch the jazz singer for this episode. It's it's kind of like Birth of, of a Nation, um, you know, a film too big to ignore, kind of. Although, and it's also I, racist. I, that's the only real comparison I would make. It is a bit racist, yeah, but I would say not, not mean spirited yeah. like the way Birth of a Nation is. Is uh, it has it uses blackface, but not in a way that feels ex like it, it's not as bad as it could have been. I guess is how I can say. It. It's overall just a it's it's a kind of a mediocre cliched narrative uh, that didn't really work for me, but I can see why it was tremendously impactful for the American public who didn't see anything synchronized sound wise to that point. Um, and basically, the film is silent in its DNA. Uh, there's inner titles. It has a musical score for the most part, but it abruptly transitions to moments where there's like a song or dance number, basically. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. a bunch of popular songs and some incidental dialogue in addition to this the score. And that just captured the audiences uh, and basically enabled or precipitated the downfall of the silent era. I guess this was 1927. I wanted to just name a few other films released in 1927. Uh, they, you know, Some we talked about, Metropolis, Napoleon, Sunrise, October, Wings. Uh, The point is, this was basically the peak of the silent era. 
uh, silent films had yet, I think, to really decline. And I think auteurs are really hitting their stride and really just experimenting in wildly different ways. And the really sad part about this is it all ended right at the very peak of everyone's abilities and this whole, you know, this whole developmental experimental part of, of the era. Yeah, definitely. And what's interesting is by the end of the 20s, uh, America had kind of poached a lot of big European talent. So a lot of the big European directors moved over to America and started working in sound films when they necessarily didn't want to. Um, but they were offered more money and a little more job security over there. So they went. And also, right, World War II is coming. So <laughs> there's, there's a lot of... Uh, drama going on behind the scenes yeah i th i think that the way that i feel i have not seen a lot from like the 30s um which is something that i would like to do but i think that when you watch those late sound or late silent era films you like really get a sense of like yeah when they had hit their peak and when people had kind of figured out the medium and um you know, created some of their best works and it is like a little unfortunate how abruptly it was cut off. Um, and then this, you know, some of like the thirties films that I've watched are like early sound films. Um, they just don't feel as like, you know, fluid and like they haven't figured themselves out yet. And I guess that's just like the nature of how things were. And for audiences at the time, I guess they, they had nothing to compare to, you know, they couldn't compare to, like, the sound films of today that are, you know, there's, you have to, like, understand, like, the wonder of, like, seeing someone on a screen and hearing their voice. Um, but I don't know. I always kind of, like, struggle to make myself watch 30s films just because I just don't enjoy them <laughs> as much. <laughs> there's just something. There are some great ones. I w don't get me wrong. There are, like, some good ones. I just, I don't know. I just can't make myself yeah. get into them so much. <laughs> I think I think it's so the thirties do get a bit of a bad rap. I think they're a little bit unfairly maligned. Uh sorry. I do think the transition period was a little rough, uh getting to full sound technology. But around nineteen thirty three is I think when most of it was settled. Uh anyways. Yeah. But I think just in general, it's not just the thirties. I think film since nineteen at the end of the silent era. Uh, basically, as soon as sound was introduced, there was a shift away from this very surreal visual storytelling um, in dramas in particular. And that's just something that really hasn't come back uh, since the silent era. So that's, I think, the biggest mm -hmm. tragedy of the silent era ending. And yeah, I mean, the 30s coming right after, it's the easiest to beat up on. But I think they, they just that style never came back ever. I was going to say, it might depend on the sort of things that you value or, like, people are attracted to the silent era for certain reasons. And, you know, the people who are, like, very attached to the silent era, it's, like, the things that they often love are just not so strong in some of those, you know, early talkies. <laughs> um, and so, I, I don't know. Maybe I beat up the 30s too much. I really would like to see more from the 30s, but um, it is it is a little hard to make yourself watch stuff that's like, like the sound quality and whatever. I like their restorations, but like, I, just... I think, uh, well, one noticeable difference for me at least is that 
from the 30s on, there's like a lot more, there's more of a focus on like recognizable movie stars, in my opinion. Like the types of uh, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, they all got their start in this era. And I feel like uh, the way I got into the 30s, it, it was more through like watching their movies and getting attached to them as actors. And that made it way easier to like open up uh, myself to this era and like seek more movies out just to watch them in whatever role they might have to get. You know, I think something to understand about like the transition from silent to sound is honestly censorship. Censorship was a big influence on why the thirties movies are the way they are. Um, I mean, even back in the silent era, censorship was pretty big deal. Like you couldn't show necessarily everything in the UK and uh, actually in America, this is kind of shocking. So in 1915, the Supreme court ruled that film censorship, like in the state of Ohio was totally legal. So it got rid of all first amendment rights for films. Uh, And that wasn't, that ruling wasn't taken away till the fifties. So during that time period, there there is a huge censorship on what you can actually show in movies and right then you have the Hayes code in america by the 30s that went on till the 60s right which determines what again you can actually show on your movie so that definitely hampers creative spirits right a lot of the 30s and 40s movies are trying to get around (laughs) the rules um as best they can right there's like that little sliver uh of films in the 30s that are fully sound very violent very intense and then boom they're gone Mm -hmm. once the haze goes kicks in right it changes the the landscape of film at least in america but the censorship is going around the whole globe at that point too so that's something i think to to keep in mind it's just like times were changing and then again on top of all of the censorship right, right is the studio systems are finally full force there's a lot of money in movies now and you don't want to waste you know twenty five thousand dollars on a bad movie so there you got to make sure things are going a certain way on set and story wise so um i think that is just some context to keep in mind from that time period and the transition it's just there was so much change i think for as much change as was going on uh, there's a lot of great movies that came out in the 30s yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, there are like, I would say that a lot of my interest in the 30s is mostly at the moment, really early Japan stuff. Um, just because mm-hmm. I think, like, I'm just really attached to things that are really like visually expressive or like, you know, have like a certain beauty to them. And I've found like, a lot of, you know, understated visual beauty in those. Um, and they're a little less like narratively focused and kind of uh take on some of that like visual expressiveness that i like even though they're early sound films um so there are like there's a lot of variety in the 30s as well i don't want to hate on the 30s too much i've not like fully explored <laughs> everything that i wanted to from the 30s um yeah, that's yeah. keep hating on the 30s smh you hated on the 30s before too <laughs> um well, so now that we're talking about uh, more American stuff, we I mean we definitely skipped over 
you know, classic Hollywood silent films and yeah. Chaplin. I mean, you gotta talk about yeah. that. It's too, it's too big. Yeah. No, I was going to, I was going to mention that in like my misconceptions about silent films that I think a lot of even like non-movie people, if they've seen a silent film, it's usually Charlie Chaplin, which I think prompts this right. misconception that like all silent films are like slapstick comedies, which is entirely not true. Mm -hmm. um, like I know some people, right, a lot, a of, lot them of them were, <laughs> but like I was talking to my dad about this. It's like, he was like saying that really the only silent films he's ever seen are were Metropolis and like probably some Charlie Chaplin and like maybe a little bit of Nosferatu, which I think mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of slapstick comedies, but uh I do think that that's like what a lot of people have seen and what a lot of people associate with the silent era if they're not super familiar with it. Also, without dialogue, it's hard to mm -hmm. oh, get totally. any, any other kind of comedy across. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, right. I do really admire the like slapstick craft, like how, like, there's just, there's something kind of enchanting about them. I don't really usually enjoy things that are meant to be super funny, but I I just think <laughs> that they're like kind of like wacky and fun. Um, I always enjoy yeah, I definitely. always enjoy slapstick comedies more than I think I'm going to. So yeah, the slapstick comedy is maybe it as I think you've said it's like the biggest genre that came out of this period. Uh, actually, it's interesting. I think most all the major film genres were codified during the 20s. Uh, the slapstick comedy, though, this one in particular, uh, it started in, I think, early in the 1910s uh, by this guy named Max Sennett mm -hmm. at Keystone Studios. He made a bunch of shorts, and he used this kind of uh, narrative logic that was basically just kind of thrown away just for fantastic visual humor. Uh, and so it was very kind of, an anarchic mix of like circus and vaudeville and pantomime and things like that. Uh, and he, he enlisted a bunch of people that you might've heard of, like Charlie Chaplin, Harry Langdon, uh, Roscoe Arbuckle or Fatty Arbuckle, uh, Harold Lloyd. Um, and all these people eventually left Keystone to uh, form their own production companies. Um, but yeah, it's a, I guess to segue into maybe Chaplin in particular, who I know some of us really love. Uh, who are not named Elena. Um, so, uh, yeah, as, as I think, as a lot of people know, he's the persona of the little tramp. Uh, he developed this at Keystone and he made a bunch of these two real shorts, uh, these kind of 20-ish minute shorts with this character. And he kind of became internationally known for this. He was actually one of the, I guess, he might be the first big star because uh, prior to movies, there's really no other way for people to know. Like people who performed yeah, in theaters cool. were not known nationally or even mm -hmm. internationally. So Chaplin was perhaps the first that was known to everyone around the world. Um, and so, yeah, I guess what are what are some of your favorite things about Chaplin, or some of your favorite Chaplin well, films? Well, I think if I uh, yeah. like if I go by average director rating, I think he's like my number one. I've seen five movies of his, and not a single one is like oh. below four stars. So I think his average is probably like four point three or something. But yeah, I I can't get enough of his stuff. He's super <laughs> funny. What's well, your favorite so far? My favorite Chaplin is actually The Great Dictator, which is not a silent. Uh, but 
You're not allowed to mention yeah, that. Yeah, nope. no. Can't say that. My favorite of his silence is probably the gold rush, I would say. Mm. Well, that I've I seen. I haven't seen Circus or a couple of the other smaller ones. Mm. The gold rush is a, a little interesting because it had the unlikely inspiration of, I think, the Donner Party <laughs> uh, with some of the <laughs> jokes in particular. Uh, yes, you yes. see, like, Chaplin cooking and eating his own shoe. <laughs> I don't know why. He's just so you good know, with like uh, his expressions and his timing. I know. It's amazing. Yeah. I think, I think the thing yes. that um has really even like today, like I think Chaplin's films are really popular still. Um and I think part of the reason for that is just he has such a distinctive look as well. Like I just this like short, mm-hmm. like silly, like not super like masculine man, I think is just like it's just really like recognizable. You know what it is? Which I he's think relatable. Is... He's relatable. Yeah. I see a lot of myself no. in him. Always like he he's always kind of like the butt of the joke That's a little bit, and like makes fun of himself a bit. And like I think of that scene in I think it's like. I think it's modern times where it's like the boxing and it's like making fun of like how just like puny he is. I'm like, it's just something like about like him just like as a person that's like very funny as well. Um, I think the two I've seen, have I seen two of them? I forget. I've seen modern times is like weird because it's like after the silent era, but it's like kind of a silent film, but they allowed talking through technology yeah that's an interesting which mix um of the genres. i think it still counts as a silent film uh and uh i don't know um there's just something i can't really say much beyond that i think that they're like funny and the jokes are well crafted <laughs> But I think that, like, concept-wise, they're pretty good, too. Like, Modern Times has, like, an underlying commentary, um, which makes it an interesting piece as well. So, Right, I think the most famous Chaplin movie, uh, at least early on, was The Kid. Um, that, that was such a big movie when that came out. And it's such a simple film. Like, it's just about... And a kid. dude and a newborn kid well, trying not to newborn. figure out he's like poverty <laughs> and yeah yeah he, he's young and he's looking to Chaplin's character for some kind of father figure um and it's it's such a nice it's it's like the it's definition nice of a feel good movie and it's also well made yeah exactly and, and it did so well um uh, in the theaters as well it really kind of threw Chaplin big time because uh, but he'd been making a bunch of shorts before then uh, that that was really the big first one for him that was I think 1921 I think was when that came out so after that he he got to spend a lot more money on some of his dream projects like modern times and the great dictator yeah. city lights the other one I've like seen that. is city lights one, one thing I think uh, is yeah. one of Chaplin's strengths is he's not only very funny but he he's also like surprisingly good at nailing the emotional core of his movies like they're all very sincere mm-hmm. and even mm-hmm. though the characters mm-hmm. are like exaggerated you still like understand them and you sympathize with them to an extent i think people would be surprised by you know if they just see like a silly slapstick comedy yeah. they wouldn't expect to yeah. like actually 
relate to these characters like i said i always see chaplin as like a great uh like american propaganda piece because he represents like this guy who's down on his luck but he always figures shit out yeah he became a millionaire (laughs) right like he he (laughs) has opportunities always and can generally get out chaplin is the american dream um Yes. I was going to also <laughs> say that, um, like, the two that I've seen kind of deal in some way with, well, I think that, like, their stories really revolve around, like, poverty and, like, um, like modern life in the early 20th century, which I think that if, you know, you're thinking about films becoming uh, a means of entertainment for a lot of ordinary people, like, that's something that those people could, like, resonate with or, like, especially thinking about in big cities where films were being shown a lot and you had, like, immigrant populations and maybe they didn't like really know the language that well but you could understand this film and like understand it because there's really no talking um and like these images of the american dream being like translated to you through these films and like seeing someone who's in poverty and seeing those things work out it's like kind of understandable why his films were popular as well um especially considering the silent film audience keep in mind those two were released during the depression yeah so there was an extra layer of this economic anxiety of the public that I think they turned to Chaplin and this guy down on his luck and seeing him being able to, Mm -hmm. through his good naturedness, being able to turn things around and Mm -hmm. ultimately get what he wants in the end. I think they found that really quite inspirational, um, at least for this time. And it still hits pretty hard. Yeah. I think it's an example of like, (laughs) you know, American propaganda that you don't really think about that much um i mean i don't know how intentionally well just probably intentionally meant in some form of propaganda well his so chaplin's other counterpart is buster keaton who i has definitely seen a resurgence in notoriety and popularity in the last couple decades um but his movies while also very funny like chaplin is um they're a little more, uh, they're just they're a little different of a vibe from uh, Chaplin. Chaplin has a lot of social commentary and uh, silly jokes with slapping and stuff. <laughs> and yes, Keaton has that. But a lot of his films are pretty inventive in the gags that he pulls. Um, I mean, in the movie uh, The General, which is probably his most famous movie he's literally on a train moving that's really moving and it's really there and he's just knocking wood off the uh train tracks as the train is moving towards him so uh, he could die at any point while doing this skit and it's that kind of level of commitment to the bit that i think is so wonderful about yeah i think the uh, general was after nosferatu the second silent film i ever watched and i remember being a little underwhelmed back then but i'm Mm -hmm. sure if i were to give it a rewatch just the the sheer skill he displays in all of his stunts i think would impress me a lot more yeah i think i think rewatching is definitely i i was similarly like not incredibly impressed the first keaton's i saw but i rewatched sherlock jr i think not too long ago and that really just mm-hmm. kind of floored me with some of the things he was able to do uh with right. uh, how he the the projection room scene in particular the one mm-hmm. where he, he actually jumps in <laughs> yes it's it's just it's it's stunning yeah. um still now yeah i think you go to chaplin for like yeah. heart and 
pure comedy, but you go to Keaton for like creativity and the stunts that he pulls. I just, I'm curious. I want to do a quick straw poll uh, around the room. Uh, Chaplin or Keaton? Chaplin. I've only seen Sherlock Jr., so I don't. I don't... Gotta pick one. <laughs> oh, I don't think I can say it. I've seen like two Chaplin and one Keaton, so. Um, I think I'm gonna have to say Chaplin. Damn, I thought you would say Keaton. Jeff. Oh wow. I I love Keaton, but Chaplin made The Great Dictator, and that movie is just so uh incredible well we can't uh, talk about it now i know i know it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard for me to judge because because um sherlock jr is only like 45 minutes um but i do like the i do like that um chaplin has like a strong narrative behind his like comedic works yeah. which makes me enjoy them well, i but... think you would like the general because that's definitely yeah that probably has yeah I, I need to see something a little longer from keaton to like really judge yeah. Um, but I do remember enjoying, like, I think I've, I really enjoyed uh, Sherlock Jr. as well. I've so. seen, like, five Chaplin and two Keaton, so it's not really a fair comparison. But I think I, I respect Keaton a lot more now than I used to. Yeah, I guess for my, my own answer, I, if I, when I was starting out, I'd say hands down Chaplin. Uh, right now, it's a lot closer. Yeah. I, I think I'd still lean Chaplin a little bit, but he has that kind of nostalgic wait, edge wait, for wait. me. Um, City Lights and the Great Dictator. We've forgotten someone, actually. guys. What about Harold Lloyd? That's right. We got to talk about Harold Lloyd now. <laughs> the third, even more obscure <laughs> uh, character. There's so many back then. <laughs> um, We're just going to go down the list, exactly. all of them. Right, I think the one that everyone knows from uh, from him is Safety Last. That, I think uh, that's the only one I've seen. Yeah, it, it is a great not seen any. hysterical picture. It's really so funny. Um, I haven't seen nearly enough of his work to necessarily have a hard opinion on him. But again, he's so creative with his visual gags in his movies. I've seen, I think, Safety Last, The Freshman, and Girl Shy, I believe. Um, and, and all of them, I don't... So from those three, narratively... They're not really that interesting. But the gags are fantastic. They are top-notch, hysterical, physical comedy with a lot of setup and uh, a lot of payoff. So definitely appreciate that. Yeah, I've only seen a couple Harold Lloyds. And one was Safety Last, which uh, has a really iconic skyscraper or I guess just a building mm -hmm. climbing section, uh, which... You know, I think it's still pretty remarkable uh, seeing him scale <laughs> all with, you know, effects and stuff and using force perspective, things like that to make it look like he's actually climbing a building. But, he, you know, it's it's still still really well done. I've seen also uh, his film, The Freshman, mm -hmm. which is him as this like fish out of water college kid who's <laughs> uh, gets pulled into right. the football team and has to, to play football. And he's um, just terrible. Well, you know, it's, it's <laughs> He's <laughs> just awful at it, but yeah. it's great to watch. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a fun, silly time. It's yeah, nothing nothing right. deeper. Uh, I think as to me, he's always I think gonna just un because he's next to uh, Chaplin and Keaton. He always his reputation. Yeah, two of the greatest movie stars ever. But right, and then yeah. the final fourth secret one that right we don't hear a lot about either is Fatty uh, Arbuckle. 
Uh, he's kind of the grandfather, to be honest, of all of these guys. He started Chaplin's career. Uh, he helped Buster Keaton out. Uh, so he he's kind of the big man on stage, but he he has a very complicated history. Um, and it's mostly because he was um, convicted of rape, I believe, in the 20s. And that kind of ruined him as an actor, uh, as it should have. Uh, so after that, he was pretty much done. Well, he wasn't actually convicted, wasn't. but it, it, yeah, it did ruin his career. Uh, so I guess the scandal was he was accused of uh, raping and murdering this, this woman at a party, which was basically, I guess, shown by the media as this drunken orgy. Um, and uh, this was like the Prohibition era, so this was very scandalous. Um, so yeah, basically the public completely turned against him and, and movies in general. They were uh, seen as like this, you know, uh, disturbing, you know, not not moral part of society. Um, and this actually kind of led to yeah, the Hays Code in definitely. some ways. Um, he was like the first big drama. So, yeah, it was a huge scandal. Yeah. Um, and it kind of overshadowed every everything else <laughs> yes. he did, like yeah. his body of work. Uh, I personally don't think I've seen any uh, Fatty Arbuckle films. Or yeah, I've seen a couple of um, short comedies. Yeah. And again, right, his he's like a chaplain, to be honest. Uh, he's just physical comedy and he's a big man. So you're laughing at a lot of fat jokes and him falling down on things. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, again, it can be funny. but uh, Precursor to of... Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know his name. I've heard of it, but I've, I've never seen any of his stuff. Yeah, he has a tainted history, so it's he's usually not in the conversation for very long, if he is at all. Yeah, American Silence are just like something that I need to see a bit more of. I don't know if there are any American Silence that are outside of the slapstick thing that we want to talk about our directors. I think there's one. Uh, just I know we're. Going long, yeah, but, it's uh, okay. Stroheim, yes, I think, definitely. would be the big one yeah. to talk about. Uh, there are other ones like Cecil B. DeMille, uh, who I think was a lot more important then, but is really, uh, no, a much more obscure figure mm -hmm. nowadays. Um, there's Robert Flaherty, a documentarian uh, mm -hmm. known for Nanook of the North, uh, especially yeah. um, controversial sort of doc uh, where he kind of staged some of the elements, but it was one of the first actual, like, documentary is done on location yeah. uh, but uh i guess storheim in particular uh i think has made uh, at least one really <laughs> really a great film uh called yes. greed yeah uh, yeah the movie's uh, incredible still not seen that but... yeah it has a interesting kind of history oh is that the one with he... the, the never mind i'll let you talk about it <laughs> so his... sorry <laughs> no, i was gonna fine. say we're part um, of lost Mostly a lot of this. Um, no. Well, I mean, yes, but in a different way. So uh, this was a film. His original version was 10 hours. Um, so basically he had to cut half the footage, uh, but it was still too damn long for the studio. Uh, so they had to even cut it down to four hours, which was the, the cut he was signing off on. But basically his studio, uh, which was Goldwyn Pictures at the time, uh, they merged with Metro and Mayer Pictures to become MGM. Uh, they they took the film from Stroheim and they cut cut it down even in half that four hour version to two, and they destroyed the the film they cut the, like the the so the parts that they cut were destroyed um, and never could be recovered. 
unfortunately. So we're kind of left with this uh, two-hour version with, uh, you know, ideas of what the full version could have been like. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it has a lot of gaps in continuity, but it's still, you know, a, a work of, like, very rich psychological mm -hmm. characterization. Which is the um, one where part of it's been lost, but we have stills it, it would that be, tell the it'd story. Be green still, that, that okay. does that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there's there's a version by TCM that they replaced the all these missing scenes that they had stills of. They yeah. just showed it kind of like a PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah. Which, to my my mind at least, it breaks the flow. Of the <laughs> it film. definitely does. Um, yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> it's not a recommended first watch. I think it's good if you've already seen mm -hmm. the film uh, and the incomplete version than the yeah. quote unquote yeah this more restored yeah. version. Um, In the United States. Uh, I was just going to say that a lot of the like directors that were working in the silent era were like directors who came um, after kind of establishing their careers in Europe as well, or at least a few of them. Yeah. So yeah, America poached a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Stroheim originally from Vienna yeah. um, and he immigrated. Yeah. Yeah. And right. Stroheim worked with Griffin on, um, uh, Intolerance. Intolerance. Yes. And birthday. And uh, yeah. Hearts of the World. Yeah. Um, so he's definitely got a book here. But uh, yeah. It, yeah. He was definitely someone who the studios really didn't like because he <laughs> went like super long yes. like, over budget with yes. some of his projects. Again, his career kind of spiraled downward after Greed. Uh, Oof. Eventually, he, he had films that uh, he was removed from. They couldn't get off the ground and he ended his career kind of just writing screenplays. Yeah, I think everyone knows him best um, from Sunset so. Boulevard. Would probably be the most recognizable thing mm -hmm. for him. Yes. He shows up in the Yeah, and I, I I think this could be a good segue to talk about maybe the larger legacy of silent films, unless there's any other last thoughts on American silence. No, I think we're ready. I think that's mostly it, yeah. Okay. Um Okay. Yeah, so I guess I had a, a little list of films that were kind of more modern or films made after the silent era that were direct homages or references to the silent era in some way. And one was Sunset Boulevard, which Jeff mentioned, um, which took place at this, well, it uses a former silent era star in Gloria Swanson uh, to basically almost portray herself in her current uh, status as this washed up star and uh, really, you know, just a, excellent movie about this whole, you know, this contrast between the two eras, this whole uh, struggling to adjust after the silent era. A lot of these stars and directors, people that just could not adapt at all and their careers fizzled out in some way. Um, the other film around this time, which took place at this transition point was Singing in the Rain, um, which, you know, I think everyone knows and one of the beloved films, but it it shows how awkward you know these early silent or early sound films were trying to put mics on people and trying to you know get them to uh, say things into the microphone <laughs> and whatnot um so it's really you know um two two just really wonderful films um so uh i could keep going down the list here um there were there have been some filmmakers we know like uh jacques tati who made uh, Monsieur Hulot's uh, Holiday, um, one of Elena's films. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry. Sorry, I think yeah. he's the Italian trainer yeah. here. 
Yeah. Okay. Iggy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This was a joke. Um, I know. I but, know. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's it, uh, a, you know, homage to silent comedies, I believe. Uh, although I haven't seen it. Um, yeah. He's, he's very much. Uh, yeah. Just. I think that's. Yeah, I think that's an interesting comparison because it's a later. I've seen like three of his films for no reason, but um, <laughs> uh, I was gonna say it's like a later example of like physical comedy or kind of this like situational comedy where there's like not a lot of speaking, but um, it's very funny. I think even like playtime, you could say that about because it's like playtime is. I I think with. It's really hard to describe if you've never seen it. With Tati, it's uh, less physical and it's more like, I don't know if psychological is the term, but it's it's more dealing with like the absurdities of everyday life. Yeah. It's about like the absurdity. I think that like playtime especially, I would say, is like about the absurdity of like modern life and technology, um, which is like something that like, I, I can see the Chaplin comparison because that's something that Chaplin um, uh, goes into as well. And um it's it's not like you know it's like the the modern like, times of his it's not so, yeah yep. it's not like so overtly funny at least to me as like some of those silent era comedies but they have like this there is kind of like a just like yeah just comedy of like the absurdity of things that you can express without words i think uh tati is a really good example of like if silent films were weren't like snuffed out so early, and uh, if they were allowed mm-hmm. to continue to evolve, I think Tati is pretty much what they would have led to, because it's it, his ability to like pack in jokes with such density. It's it's like incredible. I think Chaplin would really been really been proud. Yeah, there's a like, I think a subtlety of humor. Um, like a subtlety of that kind of humor in his work. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't really like. I've already said this. That I'm not a huge fan, but I understand the appeal. Um, and I understand that like connection. I think is really fascinating. Um, his films are just like they're very like French humor. <laughs> they're so French. Um, anyway, we'll get to Tati next yeah. time. You'll do another episode. There you go. A different episode. Different episode. I think. Um, yeah, I'll just go through some of these other mm-hmm. ones, but I mean, just Bradley. Orson Welles made uh, silent comedy homage to Much Johnson in mm-hmm. 1938. Mel Brooks did the silent movie called The Silent Movie in 1976 <laughs> or something like that. I don't know if it's actually silent, but it's called The Silent Movie. Uh, Ho Shao Shen uh, made uh, Three Times, which has a middle segment, which is all silent and using intertitles. Um, Guy Madden, uh, you know, this avant-garde documentarian slash you know i don't know the types of films he makes it categorize them exactly but some of his were uh silent film homages um aki Karasmaki made one called juha in 1999 uh black and white with intertitles and i guess some that are like Werner herzog who made nosferatu in 79 uh which is i guess you could say a remake of the the murnau film uh, it really, I think, goes back to that film and some of the source material, but uh, it it evokes it in, in ways that I, I think you can call it a direct, uh, in the direct line of. And lastly, I guess, the one that a lot of people know, uh, maybe the only silent film a lot of people see, 
have seen is uh, The Artist, the recent uh, Best Picture winner from 2011. Um, and uh, yeah, quite a controversial film in some ways, or not a particularly good one from what I hear. But, uh, <laughs> at least shows that the insp- people are still very much inspired by the Definitely. silent era. Uh, there have been mm-hmm. films made around the world and even to this day uh, that they still captures people's imaginations in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. So um, I don't know if anyone had thoughts on yeah. any of these films or. I've seen Juha and The Artist, and I don't really particularly care for either of them. I would just say that I. I hate to say that like films outside of the silent films outside the silent era just like don't have the same charm. They feel like a gimmick to me. Um, like Jua is really like it, it's really I don't know, it's it's just kinda of dull and boring. There's really like nothing no reason for it to be the way it is, in my opinion. Um and the artist, I I've heard people who like it say that it's like it's one of those movies about like love of cinema that some people resonate with but it just feels like it rips off a lot of like the silent era originals <laughs> in some way <laughs> and it's like just watch the silent era ones i don't know why we need this like rehashing of things that people did a hundred years ago um so i just kind of don't it is it, again just kind of feels like a gimmick to me i would rather watch things that are kind of a reinvention of like silent era um techniques maybe but not done through such overt means i think the tati comparison is really interesting but there are like a lot of other very like wordless films out there that um like even ones you didn't really mention like i think that it's just interesting to think of like storytelling with minimal words and how um, people do that now in ways that are kind of like less overt um, references to the silent era um, or not even like really conscious references to the silent era but just like different ways of uh, like storytelling without dialogue right so for for me a lot of uh, the silence influences on directors that you probably know like today so like in the shining the very famous scene where he's chucking his uh, axe through the door, right, is heavily, heavily inspired by the film Broken Blossoms. Uh, there's a scene in there where Lillian uh, Gish is uh, <laughs> hiding in a room, uh, and the person trying to get in there is hacking away at the door with an axe, and it's filmed very similar way, uh, almost, almost identical. Uh, and I know for a fact that Kubrick watched that scene before filming it, uh, as like a reference point, um, there's the right the famous Odessa steps, uh, right? You see that in films all the time. Like that, that scene is referenced quite a lot in modern films. But I think like the most famous representation of that scene is definitely in uh, Brian De Palma's film, uh, mm-hmm. and that uh, it's, a, it's a direct <laughs> reference, almost shot for shot, uh, to that scene. Yeah, yes, Untouchables. Yeah, Untouchables. Yep. Um, so there's there's a lot of like little things like that that come from the silent era that you maybe you just don't know or don't realize, right? A lot of the silent era is just established movie making terms and physical act of filming comes from that. So we take a lot of it for granted, I would say, just in how we watch movies now. A lot of it is being created and born during this time period, and it's fun to watch an art form 
so brand new and so modern in the scheme of our human history, right? And we get to watch a lot of it just evolve uh, in a lot of different ways. And that's fascinating. I love that about silence. All right. So um, now that you've heard us talk all about silence and how we feel about them, uh, our next episode is going to be very specific films that all of us really like. And we're going to talk about those in the next episode. So be on the watch out for that. Subscribe and keep your eye out. Exactly. Smash that like button. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Hit the bell. Hit the bell to be notified.